0: Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website and that is BigAmateurism.com. And I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories, Apple, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, all of those places. And I also have a blog that I started writing in about three years ago. And you can check that out as well. And the name of the blog is cagerredox.com, That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. a-g-e-r-e-d-com. All right, today is Wednesday, December eighth, twenty twenty-one. And you know, just when I thought it was safe to progress forward according to my own timetable, the NCAA comes out with some more propaganda that, that I need to address. But actually, this fits in perfectly to what I talked about in the last episode, and that was the Power Five takeover of governance. And I don't think it's very well disguised if you're really paying attention to what this transformation committee looks like, this Division I Board of Directors transformation committee. But what happened yesterday is the NCAA constitution Committee put out a revised draft of this constitution, this new constitution, that incorporated the feedback that they had gotten from the stakeholders, the in-system stakeholders, and apparently they sent out another survey. We don't know what that survey looked like. That has not been published. Uh, At least I have, have not been able to find it anywhere online, and it's not on the NCAA website. But this new draft has some interesting changes and I want to talk about that because it really goes, I think, to some of the really misleading tactics that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries have used here and the extent to which this facade about the student-athlete experience and student-athlete physical and mental health was nothing more than a smokescreen. And and I really want to also look at how I think – The Power Five interests, the interests that are controlling this transformation committee, are looking at the relationship between both the national office and Division One, and then the NCAA president and the divisional interests, which means, at the Division One level, the Power Five. And very slowly, we're starting to see some flesh on the bones of these open questions about how all of the moving parts are going to relate to each other, and those really were expressed by Linda Livingstone in that November 19th podcast episode, the Social Series podcast episode, when she listed a number of the open questions that are yet to be resolved at the Division One level through the Transformation Committee. And so I think this episode actually will be a nice complement and transition into the discussion about what those open questions are. And this goes back again to the very purpose of this podcast. And I said it in the very first episode and have built the podcast around the question of who gets to decide the future of college sports. Who gets to decide what the rules are? Who gets to write the rules? Who gets to interpret the rules? Who gets to apply the rules? And under this new constitution, it is no longer the the big overarching NCAA national bureaucracy. It is Division one, for all intents and purposes. There will be no changes to the governance structure in Division two and Division three. All this is going to happen at the Division one level. And looking at the composition of this transformation committee, Division one will mean power five. And they're still operating, though, under the NCAA umbrella. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to do that episode on why the Power Five simply don't move completely outside of the NCAA as they have threatened to do time and time again. And that is because they get some benefit from being under the NCAA umbrella. What I want to do here is go through this new draft and the cover memo that the NCAA Constitution Committee put out to try to explain these changes. I want to start first with some of the structural reallocations of authority as between the national office, the board of governors, the NCAA president, and then this new power five leadership structure. So that's going to be the first component. The uh, second component is going to focus on what now amounts to a bait and switch on athletes' rights and some of the selling points, a lot of the propaganda that has surrounded this constitutional makeover as it relates to improving the student-athlete experience and uh, student-athletes' rights has proven to be nothing more than an illusion. And some of these things that were trumpeted by in-system stakeholders and then were the focus of propaganda campaigns have been disappeared under this new draft. Draft document, and I'll talk about those as well. So let's start with the allocation of power. And when I did my initial episodes on what the old constitution said what the new constitution said and, and then a compare and contrast I was more descriptive than analytic and and I talked about the the Board of Governors very briefly but I want to talk a little more specifically about that because that's an important component of the power 5 takeover and the reconfiguration of the Board of Governors who will sit on it but and more importantly who will decide who sits on it is so so important because one of the problems under the old Old regulatory system is that you had this board of governors that was really self-perpetuating and then under this Old leadership model, the duties of the NCAA president were buried in the bowels of the executive regulations at the end of this 451 page Division I manual. And those related to two important things. One, selling NCAA property, which includes all of the media broadcast rights, all of the intellectual property, licensing, logos, all of that stuff. And then the authority, independent authority, to employ without any oversight, non-administrative personnel, which meant that Mark Emmert was responsible for hiring all of the outside experts and contractors and lawyers and lobbyists and public relations people. And so it was Emmert and the boys in the national office who were making those decisions, and those were very consequential decisions being made under the cover of Darkness, and you had Donald Remy, who was uh, really Mark Emmert's sidekick. These two guys played off of each other. Remy was the chief legal guy at the NCAA, and he was the one who was involved in securing these outside lawyers and developing the -the inside-the-beltway relationships, and Remy was an inside-the-beltway guy. He had a big ego, and he and Emmert really created this star chain decision-making at the national office level with some of the most consequential decisions that the NCAA has ever made. And it's my belief that this entire strategy of this blitzkrieg in Congress to try to get antitrust immunity, the elimination of state laws through preemption, and uh, a provision that athletes can't be employees was the brainchild of Remy and his outside lawyers, these high-priced D.C. lawyers who believed that they could run the chessboard inside the beltway in a way that would make the NCAA untouchable, and all that backfired. I've I've talked a lot about that. But I think what you see in this new Constitution is an attempt to neutralize that star chamber quality and that lack of accountability that existed in the decision-making hierarchy as a practical matter at the NCAA national office. And when you look at this new draft, you see that the Power Five really aren't crazy about what happened there at the national office. And they want to make sure that there is not a star chamber and a a concrete wall between the NCAA National Office and its decision makers in conjunction with this Board of Governors that was basically, I think, beholden to the opinions of these outside experts. And the more that the NCAA got into its congressional campaign and into the most important legal strategy decisions it was ever going to have to make, as was the case in the Austin case, I believe the Board of Governors just felt less and less capable of exercising any independent judgment. So when we look at this new Board of Governors, you see several things. One, you see that the Division I Board of Directors is going to have the controlling voice in deciding who is on this board. And the Division I Board of Directors is is essentially going to control the Board of Governors, which means that the Power Five are now going to control the Board of Governors. And that's an, an important piece in all of this. So the University president model is basically being cut off at the knees because under this new board of governors, there's only one university president. There could be more than one, but I think there will only be one. And there will be a a conference commissioner that's required to be on the board of governors. That's never happened before. That's important as well. But before I get to the details of this new Board of Governors, I want to issue an important caveat, and that is by replacing this old corrupt Star Chamber, Board of Governors, National Office incestuous relationship with the Power Five model, I think that's a good thing. And I think that at least from a business standpoint and a decision-making standpoint, you're going to have more intelligent decision-making and more intrasystem transparency. We can't lose sight of the fact that on the really big issues that relate to athletes' rights and athlete well-being, the NCAA National Office and the old Board of Governors have been l- marching lockstep with the Power Five. So that's not going to change. What I think will change is that you'll have more competent and transparent decision-making. And you know, there was all this discussion about making sure that the agendas for the Board of Governors meetings came out sufficiently in advance of those meetings that the decision-makers could know what the hell was being put on the table. The fact that that was even an issue that needed to be changed is a huge red flag. And again, I'm reading between the lines here a little bit, but I think what was happening— is that you had these outside decision makers, these lawyers and lobbyists and public relations people advising Emmert and Remy, and they were putting together the agendas and then ramming stuff through at the last minute. Governing boards operate in interesting space because they have to rely by necessity on the people who are working in the institutional setting as full-time employees on a day-to-day basis, and all of the information that makes its way to a governing board runs through those filters and the board meeting itself is important, but what's even more important is the meeting before the board meeting and even more important than that is the meeting before the meeting before the board meeting. That's where the strategies are formed to get the in-system stakeholder decision-makers policies put into practice. And a lot of times that's done by ambush, unfortunately. And given the stakes in the uh, congressional campaign and in the antitrust litigation and in the public relations campaign, I I think the old Board of Governors was just handcuffed to this process that took on a life of its own and over which they felt like they had no control. And it's one of the reasons, I think, that in August of 2020, the Board of Governors basically put itself on administrative leave. And at that August board meeting, they issued a statement as part of the uh, report of that meeting that said, look, we're going to just press pause here for up to two years because w- we had a strategic plan. Plan We were working on that now really is irrelevant because there's so much uncertainty on some of the most fundamental aspects of the college sports marketplace and the regulatory model. And we don't know what's going to happen next. That said, they still said that they were going to be committed to pressing their interests in Congress and in federal courts to protect the NCAA from all this besieging and frivolous litigation and all that propaganda. But that reflected to me that the Board of Governors simply lost control of the narrative. They didn't know what to do. And in the face of uncertainty, rather than acknowledge that they had lost control and and attempt to regain intelligent control, they just waved the white flag and said, we're just going to eat some popcorn and drink some soda and see what happens. And they became spectators, not decision makers. And I did a blog post on that. August 2020 Board of Governors meeting. I think I'll link to that in the show notes here so you can read that. But I I think the bottom line on this question of who gets to decide what college sports is going to look like and who's responsible for the regulatory model really boils down more to a question of competence than it does values. The values are the same, and you have no pay for play. That's part of this whole constitutional makeover. The preservation of the quote-unquote student-athlete, which is ubiquitous in this new constitution, yet the word amateurism is off-limits. You don't see that. At all. But I think what you will see is uh, a new cast of characters in the decision making seats. And when you have Greg Sankey leading that charge and you have people like President Moorhead kind of overseeing the process, you have a level of competence that simply didn't exist in the prior governance structure. And I guess I should also point out that Donald Remy, who was really a key decision maker in all these strategy calls, both in the g- congressional campaign and the legal strategy. He's no longer at the NCAA. He left the NCAA to accept a position in the Biden administration in the Office of Veteran Affairs. So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens on the backside of this constitutional makeover and this takeover by the Power Five of decision-making, whether the strategies in uh, federal litigation in Congress change. And that's one of the things that I'm going to be talking about here in, in a few episodes. And those are really important because those issues haven't gone away. We have this new change in leadership. And now the question of who gets to decide is being resolved in favor of the Power Five rather than the NCAA national office. But now the Power Five have to make sure that the question of who gets to decide isn't resolved in favor of Congress rather than the uh, Power Five. So there is a lot of uncertainty on that front. And I think that this new leadership, this new uh, governance model, still has enormous incentive to try to get some of the same federal protections and immunities that ran through the NCAA in this first uh, campaign beginning in 2019 and running through really to about June of 2021 when the wheels really started to come off the NCAA's campaign. So let's look at how this new Board of Governors Governors is going to be structured. And again, there will be nine members now instead of 21. The new constitution says that the composition of the Board of Governors shall include, with due attention to diversity and gender equity, the following voting members. One, four members of Division I. So almost half of the board right off the bat will be comprised of Division I members to include at least one member institution president or chancellor and one conference commissioner. And then the second category is one member from the Division II President's Council. Third category, one member from the Division Three President's Council. Then the fourth category, two independent members who are not currently employed or compensated by any member institution. And then the next category is one graduated NCAA student-athlete who shall have graduated not more than four years prior to appointment. And then they list some ex-officio members, which aren't important because they do not have a vote. The next section talks about the selection of these nine members. And with respect to the Division I members, these four members from Division I, they shall be appointed by the Division I Board of Directors. And then the Division two, and three members will be appointed respectively by the division two and three council, the president councils. And then the independent members, these two independent members shall be selected by the division one, two, and three members of the board of governors. And that's important because under the old constitution, the five independent members were selected by the board of governors. And it was an inside job without uh, direct oversight by the divisional Interest. And then, as to this student athlete representative, this is interesting, and I think it really exposes how illusory this talking point is about student-athlete representation. But it says that each divisional student-athlete advisory committee shall nominate one graduated student-athlete member for the Board of Governors. One of those nominees shall be selected by the other eight members of the board to be a voting member representing all three divisions. And then the other two uh, student-athlete nominees will be ex-officio members. And that's uh, important here because. Because the propaganda surrounding this new Constitution committee has been focused on this new seat and this voting seat. Because up to this new Constitution, there had never been an athlete who had an actual voting seat on any of the governing boards. But the suggestion that this representative is truly independent and is representing all athlete interests is really, I think, misleading here. Because first of all, the Student-Athlete Advisory Committee is an NCAA conference and institution-sanctioned body that is under the control of the institutional interests. These committees exist only at the pleasure of the institutional stakeholders. And I'm going to talk in other episodes in some detail about this student-athlete advisory committee structure because the NCAA has used those groups, those student groups, as cover for some of its propaganda and that happened most recently with a letter from the atlantic coast conference student advisory committee group to Congress basically parroting all the NCAA Power Five talking points about federal protections and immunities. And that letter was more about protecting institutional interests than it was athlete interests. And then the other thing about these these student-athlete advisory committees is that they are populated overwhelmingly by non-revenue Athletes, which means, as a matter of demographic reality, that most of the committee members are white. And you see gross underrepresentation of revenue-producing athletes and very, very few African-American revenue-producing athletes. So that pipeline of, quote-unquote, student-athlete representation is not Truly independent, and it is not truly representative. So, the bottom line is that this Board of Governors is going to be a Power Five show, just like the Division I Board of Directors is going to be a Power Five show. And the other interests, Divisions Two, Divisions Three, and the athlete interests are all going to run through, I think, Power Five friendly advocates. And I don't think you're going to see any. Body sitting on this Board of Governors who is inclined to or would voice any disagreement with or criticism of the Power Five interests. So with that understanding of what this new Board of Governors is going to look like, I want to talk about how this revised draft neutralizes some of the powers that had resided exclusively with the NCAA president under the old constitution. And I'm going to go to the cover memo that listed in bullet points, what the committee viewed as the important changes in this revised draft. So it says that there will be a clarification that the Board of Governors will approve association contracts regarding media rights and revenue-producing agreements in consultation as appropriate with divisional bodies. And remember, under the old Constitution, the NCAA president, meaning Mark Emmert, had that exclusive, independent, and unchallengeable authority. He did his own thing there. And now all of these association contracts will run through the Board of Governors for approval. So that is, I think, a substantial substantial check on the practical operating relationship that has existed uh, between the NCAA president and the Board of Governors. And then the next thing, next bullet point on this summary of changes is that this new constitution explicitly states that the board will consult with divisional bodies on its evaluation of the NCAA president. Because remember, under the old constitution, one of the primary authorities of the Board of Governors was to employ the NCAA president. And that relationship as between this uh, Star Chamber Board of Governors and this unaccountable NCAA president was a very cozy relationship that wasn't an arm's length relationship. And I believe that the extension of Emmert's contract in April of 2021. This unanticipated and head-scratching extension of his contract was the result of that cozy relationship. So while that decision on the employment of the NCAA president still resides with the Board of Governors, it's a different Board of Governors. And that new provision on the Board of Governors' duties in that regard reads that the Board of Governors shall employ the association's president who shall be administratively responsible to the Board of Governors. So the NCAA president still reports only to the Board of Governors. And then it says, annually, in consultation with the governing bodies of the three divisions, and that was added to this revised draft, evaluate the president. So now the divisions have an important role there. And then it says that the Board of Governors shall approve the employment terms of the president, including but not limited to compensation, benefits, discipline, and termination. And then the other thing this revised draft does in terms of checking the authorities, these independent authorities of the NCAA president, it says that they are highlighting the board's consultation with divisional bodies regarding a agenda items with a commitment to transparency on anticipated action items and that's what I was referring to earlier about the uh, the stealth agendas that are presented by ambush at these meetings to really increase the likelihood that whatever had been predetermined before the board of governors meeting was going to result in a, a yes vote and actual policy And again, it seems like a small thing, preparing the agenda and providing it to the decision makers. But that's a very powerful prerogative. And here, the new constitution, this revised draft constitution, highlights that the board has to consult with the divisional bodies. But again, this is a new board. And this board isn't beholden to the NCAA president the way it had been in the past. And all those things are important checks on the NCAA president. And then I just have to observe that the next bullet item on this memo says noting the student athlete voting member of the board will represent all three divisions and and again I'm not sure how that works or how that's consistent with this commitment to meaningful athlete representation. And then the next thing that I think is important, and this really goes to the relationship of the NCAA National Office to the other moving parts in NCAA governance, and this is the devolution down of infractions and enforcement responsibilities. I have said since the beginning of this uh, Constitution Committee's work that one of the most delicate and potentially contentious issues was going to be the fight over who gets to run infractions and enforcement. And one of the most important components of the NCAA administrative state, the NCAA administrative state, has been its infractions and enforcement program. That runs back to the 1950s and Walter Byers, and I've talked so much about that, but the current system is indefensible. I think that the new constitution recognizes that and then I've mentioned this in prior episodes, but at or about the time that this the initial draft of this Constitution came out in early November, a Tennessee representative in the House introduced the NCAA Accountability Act, which would basically have cut the— existing NCAA infractions and enforcement process off at the knees and put it under the supervision of the Department of Justice. And I don't think the timing of that bill was coincidental and I think it anticipated this behind the scenes fight between the national office infractions and enforcement bureaucrats who have been at the NCAA for a long, long time. Some of them are among the most highly compensated employees at the NCAA national office. They're extraordinarily powerful and They aren't going to go quietly, and I think that some of the language in this revised draft reflects a commitment by the Power Five to get that under control and to wrest from the national office this corrupt system that has gotten out of control. And I think that most observers agree with that assessment of the National Office Infractions and Enforcement staff. The only people who seem to think it's a good idea are the people who are in system and benefiting financially from it. And, you know, under the new revised Constitution, The divisions are responsible for that, and at Division I, that's going to be an important makeover because they're going to have to decide what they're going to enforce and how they're going to enforce it, and that's going to go to some of the core functions of this new NCAA. It's my belief that, as with the old Constitution, these highfalutin new principles that are set forth through this cut-and-paste exercise in the new Constitution are not going to be enforceable because there will not be any organic legislation that will allow them to be enforceable. Instead, you're going to see the same types of rules, rules that regulate the labor pool that place a cap on the cost of labor at the value of an athletic scholarship, and then those rules that regulate the talent acquisition market that go to recruiting. Those are going to be the two categories of legislation that you're going to see that this new NCAA will be enforcing, and that will be done at the divisional level, but we don't know for sure what that looks like. But to understand this transition from the national office to Division One, and then fractions and enforcement. You have to understand how the Power Five think. And I'm going to talk about this more when I get into a compare and contrast of this autonomy legislation movement in 2013-2014, which I believe is the template for what's happening right now with this constitutional makeover. But back in 2013-2014, when the Power Five interests were making their pitch to the Division I Board of Directors and then the Pac-12 sent a letter to the Division I Board of Directors, one of the things that they talked about was that their interests, because they underwrite the entire business of big-time college sports with football, men's basketball, is that the stakes are just different and much, much higher than for the rest of the NCAA, and that any penalties that came down disproportionately impacted the Power Five interest, and that all relates to this insane quest for being competitive in the talent acquisition market and and finding pathways to winning games. And if you are the subject of an asymmetrical and indefensible infractions and enforcement action by the national office team, and they bring the hammer down on you, that has real consequences and it costs real dollars. So the Power Five has always wanted their own enforcement and infractions process. They tried to do that back in 2013 and 2014, but that component of the autonomy movement really didn't gain much traction. Now it is inevitable, and the Power Five are going to have control of their own destiny, and they will be able to regulate any uh, penalties for rules violations in a way that isn't going to put anybody out of business. So I think there's a sense of necessity here that the revenue streams in big-time college sports are so important that they can't be left to the random, incoherent tactics of the old infractions and enforcement process. And I think as this story unfolds, and, and maybe at some point we'll get some insight on what's happening behind the scenes, but it appears to me from some of the subtle changes in this revised draft, that there has been a double down by the Power Five on insisting on having control of infractions and enforcement. And whatever battle was going on behind the scenes, it looks like it will be resolved in favor of the Power Five. So again, we'll see how that uh, plays out and what it looks like. And, And remember, once this new constitution is approved and it's going to be put to the existing Board of Governors for a vote on December 15th and I think that's going to be a thumbs up then it goes to the full membership in January for ratification, and I think it will be ratified. And then the divisions have set a timetable of January to August of 2022 to really put some flesh on the bones of these broad constitutional contours. And that's when we're going to start to see exactly how some of this power grab is going to play out into practice, and, and that's when it's going to get real interesting. I just want to go back to this memo and the bullet points on that enforcement issue. It says, modifying the enforcement-related language to address the various points of feedback raised and to make more explicit that enforcement is to be a divisional responsibility with support as requested from the association. So I, I think that makes pretty clear that at the division one level, the power five is gonna be in the driver's seat on infractions and enforcement. Now let's turn to the second category of changes that relate to the student athlete and the student athlete experience and All of this propaganda about protecting student-athlete mental and physical health under principles of student-athlete well-being. And that discussion centers around three issues. One is the protection of student-athlete physical and mental health. and There's this provision under the new constitution under Article 1, which is the principles for intercollegiate athletics. It's like the old Article 2 and has all these fluffy principles that the NCAA doesn't really stand behind and we've talked a lot about that. But they added this provision titled Student-Athlete Well-Being, which was in large measure a cut and from other prior constitutional provisions that were vague and sounded very regal but didn't really have any enforceable value. But included in that was some new language that related specifically to protecting athlete mental and physical health, and some of that language has been deleted and I think it's important to, to look at that. And then the, the second thing is name, image, and likeness and how that's being characterized. And that has changed substantially, in my view, in this revised draft. And then the third thing is how student-athletes, and I'm using that phrase the way that the NCAA does, how student-athletes can go about raising any concerns they have about the institution or conference or divisional compliance with all these new fluffy constitutional provisions, and that has changed fundamentally. As I discuss these issues, I want to just press rewind just a, a little bit to this social series podcast episode that was done on November 8th, or actually it was released on November 8th, on the very same day that the initial draft constitution was released. And in that social series episode, the three athletes on the Constitution Committee, one from Division I, one from Division II, one from Division III, were talking about all the wonderful things that were gonna happen that were uh, gonna benefit athletes. And so much of the discussion focused on a student athlete, mental and physical well-being. And I'm going to talk about that, but Kendall Spencer, who was the Division One representative, said, look, you know, there was all this discussion about uh, student-athlete uh, mental and physical well-being, and that's a wonderful thing, but he wanted to make sure that the name, image, and likeness progress that had been made by athletes through their advocacy, either through this student-athlete advisory committee or outside of that, didn't get buried in this new constitution, that it was uh, separately identified, recognized, and protected. And then the other thing he identified as important to him, and, and he thought important to all athletes, was having some process to voice And have addressed any grievances, any concerns about whether the institutions were doing what they said they were going to do when it came to all these promises that they are making to protect the student-athlete, student-athlete well-being. And what he... Suggested and and he presented this as something that he specifically lobbied for was having the faculty athletics representative, this person who was a faculty member uh, at the institutional level, who was this go-between between the athlete side of the university community and the academic side. Have that person act as an advocate for the athletes, as an ombudsperson. And that was in the initial draft that the faculty athletics representative was going to be an ombudsperson. That provision was cut off in this revised draft, and I'm I'm, I'm going to talk about that too. So let's start with this first thing, and that is the commitment to student-athlete mental and physical well-being. And I'm going to go to that subsection D, and I talked about that in a couple of episodes ago when I was talking about the November 19th social series episode with the adult interests. We had Linda Livingstone from Division I, we had Harry Stinson from Division II, and then we had Stevie Baker-Watson from Division Three talking a- about their views on the new Constitution Committee from the institutional standpoint. Baker-Watson specifically referred Referred to this subsection D of the new constitution that relates to athlete well-being as this great step forward for athletes' rights. And she created the impression that the interests that are identified in that provision are going to be enforceable, and they're not. That <laughs> was just, I think, a fundamental misunderstanding about how the entire rulemaking process and enforcement process works. But one of the problems, one of the criticisms of the old uh, governance process was that all these constitutional provisions weren't worth the paper that they were written on, absent some meaningful legislation that would allow those principles to be enforced. And there is nothing yet, and I don't think there's going to be anything that would give life to the provisions and the aspirations of this Section D in the new Constitution relating to athlete well-being. It's just not going to happen. But she she referred to that provision, and there was some new language. So that provision was largely a cut and paste, and they pulled some sentences from the old Article 2 relating to these highfalutin principles of honesty, integrity, and athlete well-being, and gender equity, and gender bias, and, and all that stuff. But there were a couple of sentences that were added there that, actually read more like a mandate than an aspiration. And I'm just going to read that that to you. That student-athlete well-being provision, subsection D of the initial proposed draft, said student-athletes shall not be discriminated against or disparaged because of their physical or mental health. Institutions, conferences, administrators, and coaches shall protect student-athletes from physical and mental abuse, neglect, and undue harm. Now, that first sentence, you know, that student-athletes shall not be discriminated against or disparaged because of their physical and mental health, uh, that's already covered either by existing federal law or by university policy, so I'm not sure whether it provides any additional protection for student-athletes. That second sentence that says, institutions, conferences, administrators, and coaches shall protect student-athletes from physical and mental abuse, neglect, and undue harm. That language sounds uh, a lot like something that an athlete could use if they were subject to physical and mental abuse, neglect, and undue harm as a basis for seeking Redress, And they could argue that that was an assumption of legal responsibility and, and a duty to act in the best interest of, of these athletes. Now, the NCAA has insulated itself from that. My can't suit that I talked about. They said we have no duty to these athletes. But this language is a, a little more specific, I think. Could be a problem for the institutions and the conferences and the divisions. That sentence, that last sentence, has been deleted. It no longer appears in the revised draft. And I went back through and did a word search and tried to make sure it wasn't disguised in some other provision. And I'm pretty confident that it's not. So I think that was taken out. And that's meaningful here. And then when you look at the bullet points on this memo that that describes the important changes, I don't see any bullet point that could arguably cover that deletion from the initial constitutional draft. What does that tell you? It tells you, I think, that the in-system stakeholders don't want to be held accountable and they don't want any language in this new document that comes within field goal range of creating a legal duty. And this was an issue in the Baylor case with the sexual violence against women. It was an issue in the UNC case with academic fraud. And in McCants, the plaintiff's attorneys there just, they filed a 100-page complaint and listed listed all of this fluffy language from the NCAA constitution that they argued created a quasi contract or a fiduciary responsibility on the part of the NCAA to protect athletes from the academic fraud and these bogus courses that athletes were steered to at UNC and the NCAA filed a motion to dismiss saying we owe you nothing we have no relationship with you no direct relationship and that's true the athletes aren't members of the NCAA something not commonly understood in response to that motion to dismiss the federal judge said yeah there there's, no, there's nothing under North Carolina law that would permit this kind of fiduciary liability. The NCAA owes you nothing. Gavel, bang, next case. So I think that the... NCAA and more importantly here, the Power Five are very mindful of not committing to any language that could resurrect a claim like the McCants claim. But the deletion of that sentence just makes a mockery of all this propaganda about protecting the student athletes from mental and physical harm and and all this stuff. And that sentence goes to some really important issues here, and that is the extent of control that the institutions and the athletics departments and the coaches have over these athletes and the athletes who are on the short end of abusive behavior or neglectful behavior or harmful behavior have nowhere to turn in system and and that so that's just an obvious problem with the way that the The college sports business model has developed, uh, particularly at the institutional level, and it's all about branding. And in that congressional hearing on June 17th of of this year, the only hearing where there were athletes who were brought before the Senate to tell their story, and that was done again in a Democrat-controlled Senate. It came through the Commerce Committee, Maria Cantwell, a Democrat from the state of Washington, is chair of that committee. And she was under some pressure to hold a hearing that actually allowed the athletes to talk. And there were a group of athletes. There weren't any revenue-producing athletes, but there were three female athletes, all African-American. And then the parent of an athlete, also African American, who died from heat exhaustion in what many thought was an abusive workout. And unfortunately at the behest of Roger Wicker, a Republican from Mississippi who's been carrying the NCAA's bags throughout the campaign in the Senate to get all these federal protections and immunities, he was offended that he didn't have complete control over the witness list and he led what amounted to a Republican boycott of that hearing. Jerry Moran, a Republican Republican from Kansas was the only one who showed up. And that was just a cameo. He was out of there like crap through a goose. But these athletes spoke eloquently to their experiences. And one of the main themes that they really drilled down on was that the institutional interests always trump the athlete's interest. And it is all driven by perception, by brand management, and the fear that any ugly story that might be exposed through student advocacy would be made public. And if somebody comes in and complains, particularly if it's a credible complaint that could do real harm, to the public relations facade that the institution has painted, then there's enormous incentive to snuff that story out, even if that means basically telling the athlete to shut the hell up. And that's not an uncommon response to that kind of thing. And a textbook example of that occurred in 2013 when the former Rutgers men's basketball coach was exposed through videotape having physically abused his players during practice, and apparently there was a pattern of that. Players had gone to athletics personnel, and an assistant coach had gone up the chain of command, and had been rebuffed, and they were turned away, and they have the conversation with the coach, and then they pretend it never happened, and it took an assistant coach leaking the video to the media for Rutgers to to take this thing seriously, but Part of their strategy was to issue a gag order, not just to the men's basketball players, but to all athletes. Rutgers' primary concern wasn't the welfare and well-being of the athletes. It was managing the crisis in a way that would minimize impact on the brand. It was nothing more than brand management. Ultimately, they fired the coach, but that assistant coach who released a video, he was persona non grata, and he basically was a pariah in the coaching community. And that just reflects the climate and culture. And I would say this is particularly true in the revenue-producing sports, where these coaches and these athletes are under extraordinary pressure to win and to keep the money flowing. That's not to say that it doesn't happen downstream in the non-revenue producing sports. It does. And one of the unfortunate byproducts of this emphasis on commercialization and professionalization and the link between the high profile sports and brand building and brand awareness is that some of that same mentality has trickled down into the non-revenue sports and the non-revenue athletes are seeing some of the same stuff. And what the athletes wanted here was some acknowledgement of that dynamic and some protection and that's not going to happen it's just not going to happen and so that ties into this this other thing on what athletes are permitted to do if there has been a violation of their rights whether they're legally cognizable or not whether they're legal or moral their rights to be free from abusive tactics and to have a safe environment and to have their physical and mental well-being Protected? What do they do? Where do they go? And it was in response to that dynamic that Mr. Spencer proposed this o- ombudsman role for the faculty athletics representative so that this person, this designated person, could field any complaints or concerns from. Athletes, and then act on their behalf to take those concerns to the appropriate decision makers and have them taken seriously and hopefully resolved in an intelligent way. And I think that as the Constitution Committee looked at that language, they were afraid that the use of the, the word person implied the existence of a relationship that could be legally enforceable, perhaps a fiduciary relationship. And So they wanted to make pretty doggone clear that the faculty athletics representative was not going to assume that role. And they said, yeah, you can use the faculty athletics representative as the point of contact, but that communication that relationship has no significance no legal significance so the constitution committee and it's not clear how this was done procedurally but they took out any reference to ombuds person and they left it very general and they said in one of their bullet points that the they are clarifying That the faculty athletics representative is the principal point of contact for student athletes with concerns about their well-being, but is not a legal advocate. So that has just been completely neutralized. And the fact of the matter is that the faculty athletics representative has always represented institutional interests. And the fact that was viewed as an appropriate point of contact for the athletes is part of the problem. If the institutional stakeholders were serious about protecting student-athlete physical and mental health and abusive tactics by anybody in the athletics department, they would have an outside advocate who would have meaningful authorities to present cases to the university where athletes have been mistreated. That's not going to happen. They've created an environment where the only option for athletes who have been mistreated or abused is to go outside the university to seek redress because the in-system stakeholders are more concerned about their brand and brand management than with protecting The rights and interests of the athletes and the other thing is a practical matter, again, particularly for athletes in revenue producing sports where now these universities are on a bender to get coaching talent and they're paying coaches $10 million a year in big time football. That investment makes it almost impossible for the institution not to have the back of that coach. And what faculty athletics representative is going to march into the office of an imperial coach bringing a complaint from An athlete, a player on that team, and look that coach in the eye and say, This is a problem, you have to change it. That's just not gonna happen. And the athletes know that because they don't have a reliable advocate on campus that they can trust. They say nothing. And that relationship between the institution and the athletes is a okay because then the institution doesn't have to deal with it. And that's just the reality of the power dynamic between the institutional stakeholders on the athletic side and the athletes. And these athletes are afraid of retribution. And if you are a big-time football player or basketball player at a power five school and you have aspirations to play professionally or to just maximize your opportunities on the college roster you have to be real real careful about your relationship with the coaches and if you you know make a, a play where you're making complaints and the complaints make it outside of the team setting that coach can ruin your career with a phone call. Or through a sur- surrogate. I mean, that, that happens. And the power that these coaches have is, is something that I think people don't understand. I would say that for most of these athletes, the relationship they have with their their college coach, these big-time Power 5 revenue-producing athletes, is not only the most important relationship that they're likely to have when the younger years of their life, but it's also the most power imbalanced. And that's just a dynamic that overshadows all of these athlete interests. And again, that tr- has trickled down, unfortunately, to non-revenue sports. But uh, a lot of those athletes aren't planning on uh, making a career in their sport, and so the stakes are different. And then this third thing, a uh, specific inclusion of the athletes' rights to commercialize their name, image, and likeness also got watered down. That was included in the initial formulation of the college student-athlete model, which is the NCAA Power Five's new disguise for amateurism. But in the first draft, that section included specific reference to name, image, and likeness. It said, student-athletes may not be compensated by a member institution for participating in a sport, that's your amateurism requirement, that may receive educational benefits and benefit from commercialization through use of their name, image, and likeness in accordance with the guidelines established by their NCAA division. And that language has been taken out relating to name, image, and likeness and instead How it reads is, now student-athletes may not be compensated by a member institution for participating in a sport, but may receive educational and other benefits in accordance with guidelines established by their NCAA division. And then there's another discussion of name, image, and likeness in the context of the divisional authorities and requirements. And it now says that each division shall establish guidelines regarding student-athlete benefits, including commercialization of name, image, and likeness, and to prevent exploitation, and and blah, blah, blah. The language from the first draft said regulations to ensure consistency among member institutions regarding the use of a student-athlete's name, image, or likeness. And those changes do a couple of things. One, they de-emphasize the focus on name, image, and likeness, and they take out of the discussion of name, image, and likeness, any use of the words regulation or rule, and instead they want to use guidelines. And the reason for that is that the NCAA and Power Five, in this uncertainty over what amateurism really looks like now and what their potential liability might be for compensation limits and enforcing compensation limits, they want to be as vague as they possibly can. I think this also suggests that once the NCAA and Power Five, more importantly, get this new constitutional structure into place and the divisions have done their work between January and August, on the backside of that, I think you're going to see the Power Five taking a good hard look about what it wants to do with name, image, and likeness. But what it doesn't want to do right now is commit to drafting rules changes or regulation changes that would be enforceable at the national level and invite more antitrust scrutiny, particularly given the fact that this House case, which relates to name, image, and likeness, this antitrust case is pending out in California, and I'm not sure where that's going right now, but I think that the Power Five just wanna try to buy some time here to decide whether they just wanna go back to Congress on the backside of all this and try to get more control over the name, image, and likeness market. And I think one of the broader strategies with this whole makeover, which has in large measure been an exercise in restating the obvious and cutting and pasting from the old Constitution and moving the furniture around a little bit. But I think what the Power Five want to create here is a sense that there's been this fundamental makeover and that they can go back to Congress now with a new look and a new voice, and make some of the same requests that the NCAA was making in 2020 through its Iron Throne quest in in the Senate, and and that failed. But the Power Five still want those things. And again, at the values level, the NCAA and the Power Five are reading from the same sheet of music. So you're going to see, I think, the, the Power Five deciding where they want to go with this and for the time being this mess that now exists in the in the name image and likeness market because the NCAA refused to follow through on its promise to, to voluntarily change its rules its actual rules and this interim policy is not a rules change but the institutions now are responsible for in large measure for governing name image and likeness and I think right now the power five are okay with that and leaving it at the institutional level and trying to keep the division and conferences out of it to the extent they can and only speak very broadly and vaguely about name, image, and likeness. But for right now, I think that the Power Five are trying to just keep their finger in the dike on that issue until they decide on the back side, what they want and how they're going to go about getting it. But again, I think that's going to involve at some point a a re-engagement with Congress, and they're going to try to get as many protections and immunities as they can, including antitrust immunity and the preemption of state laws that interfere with compensation limits. All right, so that'll do it with this update on the revised draft of the NCAA Constitution. And then in the next episode, I'm going to start talking about really the important issues that are going to come up in the Division I Transformation Committee. And I'm going to talk about the comparison between this movement and then the autonomy movement from 2013 and 2014. And I just, I find it really interesting, not just the similarity in the goals, but uh, some of the rhetoric and the propaganda that surrounded that campaign is, again, I think very similar to what's being put out there now. So with that, uh, I just want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.